You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Well, hey there, New City. My name is Nate Bush, going to be lead pastor here. I'm glad you are joining us either in person or online today. And before we get into our study on relationship goals, I want to highlight a couple of things. And one of those things is today is nationally celebrated as Orphan Sunday. Uh, Orphan Sunday is a Sunday we have every year set aside for the last many years at New City to say uh, thank you for those who are our parents uh, who have adopted or to say thank you uh, to those who are fostering and acknowledging that uh, role that people play. And uh, this week I sent a friend of mine, Adam Kent. Adam uh, is a pararescue man in the Air Force, attended New City for many years, uh, is now stationed elsewhere. But Adam and his wife, Crystal, uh, began to hear about foster care, adoption began to be a burden for them in their heart, and uh, Adam uh, posted this picture a few months ago of himself uh, just cuddling with one of their foster kiddos, and this photo was so gripping uh, to them, uh, it was so gripping to me to sort of see on Facebook, to see online, that uh, I was just taken by it, and so I sent Adam a note and I said, hey man, um, thank you for doing that. I know these kiddos did not choose the pain that they're experiencing, and thank you for choosing the pain of fostering. And uh, so it appears as though the photo is not available <laughs> right now, but uh, it is it's on my notes right here. You can see it that way. But, uh, you know, Adam and uh, Crystal and so many others at New City have said yes to foster care. I said yes to adoption. And I want you to know I recognize you. I see you. Uh, I, we, we uh, as a church, uh, try uh, to pay attention to the needs of uh, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant within our community. And I am so grateful for you, so grateful for your service to the kingdom that way. Also, I just want to make note of the fact that there's been an election going on, <laughs> and so that's gotten a lot of people's attention lately. Here's my, uh, the scripture I've been leaning into, and I think this sometimes is helpful. This is out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 2, and that's, I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all goodness and holiness. I've been thinking about this passage a lot lately, just, uh, just how countercultural it is to pray for um, uh, the fact that we might live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And uh, that's my prayer for, uh, for our country, that's my prayer for our nation right now, is that we would uh, begin to experience that kind of life, a life of 
peaceful, quiet, godliness, and holiness. Uh, it's a way for us to pray for those who are in authority, a way for us to pray for our governor, a way for us to pray uh, for president-elect or, uh, you know, our president uh, who's currently serving that role. So to be, be praying for uh, those realities, that's how I've been praying during this time. Uh, now, I also sent uh, an email out this week, a kind of a COVID update to all of our church. If you don't get those updates, hit the Connect card online or let us know uh, through the app that you are new to New City. We'd love to be able to connect with you. But uh, in the update, I just let you know I've been talking to medical professionals around our church community, uh, listening to the rise of COVID cases here in Albuquerque and uh, the issues related to that. It's real. Uh, hospitals are really stressed and our nurses are stressed. And I got so many email responses, uh, I mean, several email responses from medical professionals professionals at New City saying, thank you for paying attention to this. I'm really burned out. I'm really tired right now. This is really hard. And I, I want to encourage you to acknowledge a medical professional in your life, uh, to, to, uh, to say thank you to them. If you know somebody who's serving in the medical field right now, uh, uh, what I'm hearing from our doctors at New City is that the next two weeks are going to get worse before it gets better, that we'll probably peak in about two weeks' time here in our state in terms of COVID-related uh, uh, sickness and illness and hospitalizations. Uh, so it gives us some cause to pray. Uh, certainly we can be praying for peace and, and we can pray for quiet lives in the next uh, two weeks, but we can also be praying for our medical professionals. And so let me just hit pause because there's a lot of things here to pray for uh, before we jump into our teaching today. So he, let's, just, let's just do that right now. So Father, I thank you for Adam and Crystal Kent, and I thank you for their service uh, to our country in the military, but I also thank you for their service uh, to children in their home. And I pray that you make their home a sanctuary, a safe place. I know the pain of Foster care is one that they have experienced, uh, one that they know very well. And I know the kiddos uh, is, you know, there's no kiddo in foster care that has to be there. And I'm so grateful uh, for those who have stepped into that space and said, uh, we are willing to, to, to journey with you that way. I thank you for the adoption, Father, that you've given us all as Christians, that you brought us into the family. We thank you for the spirit of adoption that calls us into the narrative of foster care and adoption. Uh, certainly, I pray for our country right now. Father, I pray that you would bring peace to our country, that you would help us to live uh, dignified, godly lives that are quiet. Um, it seems so countercultural in our moment to not be loud and to be recognized, but to, to yearn for quiet, godly, and dignified lives, to, to pray for government that brings that about to a country. I pray for that, uh, for, our, for the, government of <laughs> the government of New Mexico, for sure, but also for our nation. Uh, we know that um, the COVID deal has not gone away, Father. The sickness has not, has not gone away. I do praise you for the fact that sickness will go away one day and that you've overcome sickness ultimately. Uh, but I want to say a special prayer for every doctor, every nurse, every medical worker at New City. Uh, I, I want to I, I, I ask, Lord, just as a, as a gift to them, that you would give them a, an extra dose of your peace, that you let them know that you're present, that you'd speak to them, that you love them, that you care for them, and that even though these next few weeks are going to be hard, uh, that you are present, um, and as one of the, as one nurse said to me, Father, that help me to find the mission in the mess. I just pray that you'd do that. You'd help, you'd help our nurses to find the mission uh, in the mess. And I ask for that in uh, in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. We're in the series called Relationship Goals, all right? So we're setting some goals in the series. Last week's goal was this, to ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. And I, I had some email responses last week to my message say, saying, you know what, I've been keeping score at home in my marriage, and I need to stop doing that. I need to embrace 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrongs, and I've been keeping a long list of wrongs, and, and, uh, and, they, and people have been embracing 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins, and saying, you know what, 
I'm going to let love cover sins in my home because the love of Christ has covered my sins. That's been really like just a, sort of powerful for relationships in and around our community. Uh, the Matthew 5.41 was one of our key verses last week and looking at kind of the second mile Christianity, not returning reviling for reviling, but instead when somebody unjustly asks something of you that you go the extra mile, you do the extra thing. And that's what love looks like in the Christian walk, or in Matthew 5.45, that love is so profound within Christianity that we love even our enemies, that we love our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us, and so uh, sometimes the enemy uh, in your life is the one you live with, <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think sometimes we got to challenge people to say, hey, are you praying for your husband, are you praying for your wife, are you praying for your friends, are you praying for those whom you're dating, and we need to be praying for those whom, with whom we have conflict in the world. And so the question I've been asking of the Sermon on the Mount, that's where we are at, and I just want to ask you to do this in your own devotional time. I've been asking the question, what would it feel like to be in a relationship with someone who is living the Sermon on the Mount? Like, what would it feel like to be in a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, a dating relationship with somebody who is living the Sermon on the Mount? Uh, to state again what John Stott says about this sermon, you can find this sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He says, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. For it is his own description of what, we, what he wanted his followers to be and to do. And so if you've ever looked at Christianity and said, okay, I get it, Jesus died on the cross for my sins, what next? Uh, I get it, I receive salvation, what next? Well, you go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and Jesus says, this is what I want you to be and do. Uh, so read this, meditate on this, put this into practice in your life. So the goal one was ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. Today's goal, all right, give it to you right at the top. And so we're going to spend some time with it. That is to relentlessly protect trust with truth-telling and integrity. Relentlessly protect trust with truth-telling and integrity. It is often the outline of my messages, even though you don't always see them uh, overtly stated. Most of my outlines of my messages are, are worded like this, like why do you need it and how do you get it? That's just basically it. Why do you need it and how, you get, how do you get it? Why do you need trust? Why do you need truth-telling? Why do you need integrity? And how do you get it? Uh, and so I want to talk to you for a little bit about why you need it. Uh, it's important, and it's probably more important than you, you might think about. And it, it, um, it seems to me that speaking about integrity doesn't feel like a sexy topic uh, to, to speak on, but I can tell you that intimacy in a relationship is dependent on integrity. Uh, we want relationships to work. I mean, that's what we want. Uh, we want our relationships to work. And if you want your relationships to work, I can tell you, friend, uh, you go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you start working that into your life, and you're going to find that relationships will work. All right, so this Sermon of Jesus shows us how to make relationships work. Now, a little bit of a warning for today, okay? I'll note this again later, but a little bit of a warning for today. I am going to be talking about marriage and sex and truth-telling, but the, 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 sort of the, the message is applicable beyond just marriage relationships. It's applicable to every relationship that you might have as a human being. Uh, but the passage in verse 27 begins with speaking about sex. 
Uh, you see, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's the topic there. Uh, you'll see the next section in verse 31 speaks to marriage. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife. And so he speaks here to marriage. And then you'll see that in verse 33, Jesus speaks to truthfulness. Again, you've heard that it was said, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. And so you have a, a, a teaching on truthfulness. And so the question I'm asking of the, ch- the, the text is, how do sex, marriage, and truthfulness work together to provide flourishing relationships? Like, how do you provide a flourishing relationship by putting together the combination of those things, of truth-telling and marriage and sex? Like, what do those things have in common? Now, I'll say it again because I want to make sure that everybody hears me here. Uh, the principles in the message apply beyond marriage to every human relationship, Okay. And so I will make some application here to marriage today, but it applies, the, the principles here apply to every human relationship. So if you're not married, have no intention to be married, that's okay. Um, hold on, all right? There's some stuff here for you. Uh, but here's the big idea, a uh, real big idea in the text. You cannot understand the biblical view of sex without understanding the biblical view of marriage. And you cannot understand the biblical view of marriage without understanding the biblical view of truth that marriage requires a basic understanding of truthfulness and truth-telling. Because without truth, there is no trust. And without trust, there is no intimacy. And without intimacy, there is no relationship. And so let's look again at this passage as it deals with the telling the truth. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. And so what Jesus is doing here is addressing a teaching that you didn't have to keep your word unless you swore in a certain way. And he's saying, no, that's not, that's not true. Christians are people who keep their word, period. Uh, we are truth tellers. And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying integrity here is important. And to the point of our message today, integrity is essential to intimacy. When, inte- when integrity breaks down, intimacy always breaks down. You might say that intimacy is a lagging indicator of a lack of integrity. It's something that shows up in the relationship, but it shows up because there's been some breakdown in integrity in the context of that relationship. You see, every broken relationship is rooted in a, in a broken trust because someone in the relationship didn't keep their word. I, I've been doing marriage counseling for years and years and years, and I can tell you that what happens in the context of a relationship that breaks down is that trust is broken down because someone didn't keep their word. Someone wasn't speaking the truth. They weren't sharing the whole truth. They were concealing truth. They were managing truth. They weren't, they weren't living lives of integrity. And when integrity is lost, intimacy is lost. Look, if you want love in your relationships, this, no, this doesn't seem like it should be true, but this is like one of those freakonomics of relationships. If you want love in your relationships, tell the truth. Like, be vulnerable and tell the truth. There are a lot of people who buy into this idea that, uh, that you wouldn't really love me if you really knew me, and so they've developed a lifestyle, a habit of telling falsehoods and pretending to be somebody they're not really. 
And what happens is you can't carry that charade on for very long in a relationship. And eventually somebody finds you out. And when they find you out, they realize, I didn't know that, I didn't know that you were really like this. What, 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 why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you reveal it? And it's what happens is intimacy breaks down. Let what you say be simply, the words of Jesus, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Like, speak the truth. Now, you can see this both on the micro scale and the macro scale in life, all right? How when truth breaks down, integrity breaks down, trust breaks down, intimacy breaks down. For example, right, we're experiencing a national crisis of institutional distrust. People are not believing institutions. Why? Well, institutional distrust is directly correlated to a lack of institutional integrity. People are looking at institutions and they're saying, you said one thing, but you've done another. Or, I, I thought you were this way, but now I see that you're really this way, and what's happening, and you're not the same today and yesterday, and it's, it's like, I can't figure out who you really are. And as cultural trust diminishes because of integrity loss, hear me now, so does cultural intimacy. You know, it's really interesting how a simple thing like an election can turn friends into enemies. And how people just sort of begin to distrust the other side and to distrust the institution, distrust institutionalism, and how that breaks down intimacy. I think we have a national intimacy crisis, like a crisis in our country where relationships aren't going as deep as they used to go and people aren't feeling as connected as they used to feel. And th that is because of this sort of, sort of institutional sort of distrust, this lack of integrity that's kind of pervaded the culture. Well, truth is the basis for every relationship. The truth is the basis for every, for every, uh, for every relationship to flourish and to thrive. It needs to have truth as its core component which is why marriage is best understood as a covenant. The basis of marriage is a covenant. It's a promise to keep your word. It's a promise to say, to say yes, and then that, for that yes to be something you stick to. It was also said, Jesus says. Now, this is, Jesus is not confronting Old Testament teaching here. He's con confronting rabbinic teaching that's kind of been pervasive in common culture. Whoever divorces his wife... Uh, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, it was common knowledge at that time that rabbis were teaching you could divorce your wife for something as simple as burning your toast. That the, the rules uh, that, that regulated marriage and divorce within the common culture put women who are the most vulnerable in society at the time more vulnerable. And this teaching of Jesus was about protecting women in the community because they were most vulnerable. And if they just uh, communicated some kind of incompatibility with their husband, that was enough to sort of end the relationship. And Jesus is going, that's not enough for Christians in marriage. See, a covenant is a promise to keep your word. And that's why these two passages go together. 
because they're about sort of keeping the word. And so everybody wants to sort of dive into uh, the exceptions to, to the rule. And there are many, and many people have been, you say, have been divorced and have gone through the, the pain of divorce. And man, I, I, I feel you, and it, it hurts. And Jesus recognizes that's a reality, that divorce happens. And he talks about sexual immorality here. And John Stott says, uh, this is what sexual immorality means in, in uh, Jesus' teaching in this particular passage. It seems, therefore, that pornea is a comprehensive word, including adultery, fornication, and unnatural vice. It's a violation of the covenant. And the big idea of the teaching here is that marriage is a covenant, not a commodity. That's the big idea. It's a promise. It's a promise to be kept. Now, if you've been divorced, man, there's hope on the other side of that, my friend. There's hope on the other side of that. And I know friends who have been divorced and who are still looking for a relationship and they want a committed relationship. They want to know how to make it work. And so if you want to know how to make it work and you've been through a divorce and you're in like that challenging spot in your life, uh, just go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says this is how relationships work and start sort of researching and studying and find out what it looks like. See, a consumer relationship says something like this. You adjust to me or I'm out. And many people have been in relationships like that. But a covenant relationship says, I will adjust to you because I've made a promise. I'm a person of integrity. I keep my word. See, a consumer relationship is based on performance. I'm in this as long as you do the right thing. But a covenant relationship is based on a promise. I'm in this because I made a commitment. I told the truth. You see, all relationships, not just marriage, depend on truthfulness. They, they depend on truthfulness. They depend on trust. Let what you say be simply this. Yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So let me just say it really simply. An, anti an antidote for broken relationships is integrity. Now, integrity isn't something that can be established tomorrow. Because integrity needs time. Needs time. Truth-telling over time, it, it requires living that truth over time, but that is the healing remedy for the broken relationship. It's consistency, commitment to telling the truth, to living the truth. The answer to an intimacy crisis is an integrity commitment. It, it's, it's remarkable to me when I've met with couples in crisis how often I've had to say uh, to, to a couple in crisis, I need, I need you to know that, I, that you need to be more committed to this relationship than I am. In other words, like this is not going to work unless there is some covenant commitment we make together. Because if in the counseling relationship I find myself more committed to your relationship health than you are, then I can't do any, I can't help you. You have to, you have to make a commitment. In a culture where trust has eroded, produces self-protected tribalism, or worse, and this happens in a lot of relationships, self-protective individualism. I don't trust you anymore, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do me, and you do you. Look, for our psychological health and well-being, like for our well-being emotionally, intellectually, we need predictable trustworthiness in our friendships. 
Like, you know, you can't, you can't for a long time like live in a relationship where you just don't know what you're going to get. And there's all kinds of, un, you know, it is, there's all kinds of unpredictable sort of behavior and whatever at home. You know, like it's just hard. It's really challenging. And you need to know that you can depend upon a certain pattern of behavior. I can tell you this, like children need from their parents, from moms or from dads, and they, they need predictability. They need to know what they're going to get. And we are desperate for the security that integrity provides. Now, I have um, been surprised over the years. I shouldn't be surprised. I still am surprised. But I am surprised at human capacity to keep a secret. The the human capacity to lie. Uh, I've counseled people, and we've been in relationship, and I found out that one person during the entire counseling relationship was still having an affair, and I didn't know. But just bold-faced, believable lying. I've been in relationships with people and counseling relationship where I discovered that one person in a relationship had a credit card with $100,000 of debt that their spouse didn't know about because they kept it a secret. It's like, unbelievable. Like, humans are liars, and they're really good at it. And you're really good at it. And, you know, the gospel frees you, by the way, to speak the truth. Because there's no dark thing in your life that you could ever say out loud that Christ isn't willing to forgive you for. There, there's no secret in your life that you must keep concealed as, in, in fear that Jesus isn't there to forgive you. You see, a person of integrity consistently tells the truth and keeps their word, which is necessary to experience mutual vulnerability. And so I'll say it again, just for the purpose of driving the point home, without integrity there is no intimacy. You, you need to have integrity if you want to experience intimacy. And intimacy, in my experience, tends to be a lagging measure. In other words, like it shows up late. Like when the intimacy troubles happen, that's when people start reaching out for counseling. But really what's happened before then was an integrity issue. It, it was, it was some, some form of subtle covenant breaking over time. So I have a friend um, who I've been on some high profile kind of leadership calls with lately. And we've been interviewing people from around the country who are just like dynamic leaders. And he keeps asking this question. And I love it so much. Uh, and I, I've been asking it now myself a ton. This is like a really great question. And so, so Justin, whenever we're on, his name is Justin. So whenever we're on a call, he goes, hey, one last question. What's one dumb thing that really smart people are doing in this area? It's just a great question. I love that question. And so I've been asking it a ton. Like, what's one dumb thing that really smart people are doing in this area? And so I'm going to ask that question of this message. Like, what's one dumb thing that really smart people do in this area of their marriage? I'll tell you what it is. In marriages, they have real face-to-face talks and regular date nights. This is, if you want, you know, in a marriage relationship, if you want to foster an environment of truth-telling, integrity, truthfulness, and by regular, I don't mean like once a month, I mean the regular Opportunities to sit face-to-face, no distraction, phones down, having real talk on a date night. It's just one of those really dumb things that really smart people do in this area. All right, you cannot understand the biblical view of sex without understanding the biblical view of marriage, and you cannot understand the biblical view of marriage without understanding the biblical view of truth. And so what does this all have to do with sex? 
Well, sex is also is not a consumer good, it's a covenant good. Now, this is a Christian teaching on sexuality. It's unpopular, but it is the Christian teaching of sexuality. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not take sex outside of its covenant space. So sex is meant to be an outward display of an inward vulnerability. It's meant to be a way in which we connect to the things we've already done. We connect physically with the things we've already done intellectually and emotionally. So sex outside of marriage, it lacks integrity because you're asking someone to do with their body what you are not yet willing to do with your whole life. You're saying, make this, make this commitment to me physically in this sort of act of intimacy where I'm not yet ready to make this commitment to you psychologically or emotionally uh, for any for a period of time. Non-covenantal sex mirrors phys- physically what you should have already happened in your relationship or should already be happening in the relationship emotionally and psychologically. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a part of a whole puzzle. So to have physical union without whole life union is an attempt to have intimacy without the integrity, and I, it, it won't last. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's not at its best. So sex is not meant to be taken as a consumer good. That's the big idea here. But it's meant to be given as a covenant good. And I'll say two more things about this. Sex is a good gift from God. Uh, when you open up the Bible and you read the first page of the Bible, the Bible begins with a naked man singing a love poem to a naked woman. Like, the Bible's not like afraid of having the conversation. There's plenty of texts I could bring up right now that would just make us all blush. But marriage and sex are not necessary for human flourishing, and I need you to hear me on this. Marriage and sex are not necessary for human flourishing. There is an idolatry in American culture, and there's an idolatry, I would say, even in American Christian culture of marriage and sex, as if this was the key to human flourishing. But when you read about the resurrection, the things to come in Matthew 22, Jesus says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given into marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Marriage is only pointing us to the covenant relationship we have with God. The intimacy of marriage points us to the intimacy that we have with God. It's a signpost to something greater. It's not the thing itself. And this idolatry of marriage and idolatry of sex in our culture is something we really probably should be confronting. Verse 28 of Matthew 22, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he's going to go on to say, look, adultery is, taking sex outside of the covenant relationship is more than just what happens physically. There is a, there's a, a place for sexuality. It's a, it's a covenant good to be given, not a commodity to be right, taken. And he's going to say, hey, look, if you struggle in this area of lust, if, if, you, if you struggle in this area with pornography, whether you're a man or a woman, this is a Pornography is an issue that many people struggle with. If you're struggling with this area and your eyes are wandering, your feet are wandering, you're doing things that you know you shouldn't do, he says, if you can't be a good person, you better be a wise one. That's the key idea. If you can't be good, you better be wise. And Jesus does this teaching through hyperbole. He says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. What's he saying? He's not well, I mean, obviously he's not saying pluck your eyes out. He's speaking hyper, you know, hyperbolically here. He's like, if your eye is leading you to sin, then, then, then take that sin away. 
Take that temptation away. And so this is the moment where we just got to say, in terms of integrity here, where are you most likely to lose your integrity? Like, where's the environment? Like, honestly, Holy Spirit, lead our thinking now. Where are you most likely to lose your integrity? What do I need to stop watching? What do I need to stop doing? Where do I need to stop going? This is an important question. Because if you want intimacy in relationships, then intimacy is predicated by integrity. And if you lack integrity, then what you're going to find is that intimacy will falter. And Jesus is saying in this text, I don't want your life to be a dumpster fire. Literally, that's what he's saying. I don't want your life to be a dumpster fire. Listen to me. If you can't be smart, better be wise. Like, eliminate the temptation from your life. If your right, eye, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Now, the word hell here is Gehenna. It literally was something he could have pointed to in this moment and say, do you see that trash heap at the end, edge of town that's literally on fire? The dumpster fire? I don't want your life to be like that dumpster fire. So get it under control. Live with integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so goal one was ruthlessly eliminate scorekeeping. The goal number two is relentlessly protect trust with truth-telling and integrity. And I've been trying to tell you why you need it. And the reason why you need it is because you won't have intimacy if you don't have integrity. And if you want intimacy, then you're going to have to have integrity. But how do you get it? You have to crucify the old self. And this is a, this is a posture of the Christian. Is crucifying the old self. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Man, the thing I want to say, I'm not sure if I should say it, so I'm just going to say it anyway. I don't know. Holy Spirit, all right, speak. Many people came to Christ because they, thought, they heard a message that if you come to Christ, um, it's going to be really easy. Right? It's like it was a sales pitch. Like It's going to be really easy. Um, you got, you have your sins will be taken away. There's going to be really nothing expected of you. Um, and really all that you really need is just to sort of receive, open-handedly receive. And that's not untrue. It's just not wholly true. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. What happens when you receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? You're saying something. You're saying, Jesus is more important to me than anything else. And following him is my first it's my first obligation. Christians say things like, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. In other words, like, I'm willing to hate my mother and father if that's necessary in comparison to following Jesus. 
And so a Christian person who is committed, is committed to the way of Christ and following Him and crucifying the flesh and saying, this is no longer has control over me. I'm not defined by, by my flesh and by, by my fleshly passions and desires, but I'm a recipient of the Holy Spirit. Now I walk in step with the Spirit. And you have to follow Jesus with the power of His Spirit. It's not like you just go out and you go, I'm just going to try harder. That's not Christianity. Christianity is not just moralism. It's receiving the grace of God for sure. But along with receiving the grace of God, it's receiving the Holy Spirit for the purpose of walking in step with that Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says in Galatians 5.25. Man, I've got all kinds of thoughts coming online today. Let me say it, let me say it this way. Um, it, it, might be, it might be worth it for you before you, you look at that thing, before you have that conversation, before you go to that place, to just ask, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do? Somebody right now is in a moment where conviction can lead to integrity through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their life. It, there's a phrase I've used over and over and over again. I think I got it from John Owens years ago. I'll be putting sin to death or be putting you to death. Because sin ultimately is undoing God's plan in your life. It's undoing your relationships. It's breaking apart the intimacy that you long for. And the solution is submitting the bowing the knee to Jesus in every area of your life. And you might say, this is a great definition of a disciple. A disciple of Jesus is someone who bows the knee to Jesus in every area of life with increasing measure. Just every day, saying, Jesus, you have a little bit more today of me. We often say at New City, the gospel is, I can't, he did, because he did, I can. And so you can't be a person of integrity if you could. Jesus wouldn't have to come and die for you, but he did. He died for you. He did for you what you could not do for, for yourself. But he's given you the Holy Spirit, so now you can go out with his power. And I pray, Holy Spirit, bring your power on our church. And so, Father, I pray that you would do that. You would help us be a people of integrity. Man, I've been wrestling uh, this morning, Father, with just like not having a lot of jokes and, you know, even as I was thinking about sort of relationship jokes and the rest of it, I, I, really, um, I really feel like the word that you want, you want me to know and you want our church to know right now is, um, is that you love us and you care for us and you want us to have vibrant, real, truthful relationships. You want our marriages to thrive. You want our relationships to, to thrive. You want people who have gone through divorces to to, to have renewal and redemption in their story. And, um, and, and you've given us like the gift of each other. You've given us the gift of relationships. You've given us the gift of intimacy. And, uh, and so, Father, I just pray you protect it. Just protect it. And if there's any, anybody listening right now who just needs you to rebuke them through the power of your spirit because they lack integrity, and they're lying, and they're not telling the truth, and it's ripping apart their relationships. Would you confront them, Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them? 
Bring them to repentance. What a gift it would be if you could save a relationship right now, Father. What a gift it would be if you could just save a relationship. So Holy Spirit, I pray you'd do it. You'd come right now into our life. That you'd save a friendship. You'd save a dating relationship. You'd save a marriage. You'd renew a marriage. I can't speak for everybody, but I do want to say, yes, we submit to you. We submit the way to you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.